I, again, I don't know what it was about this plot. Maybe I felt like the uh, it was going to be more of a movie about a movie, and it really the, it, it's not a movie about a movie. But uh, I I don't find those to be that compelling. So, um, but the, this this wasn't a movie about a movie. It was a movie about a fake movie. <laughs> This is Movie Bite, a show where we discuss, praise, lament, and sometimes even lampoon movies, TV shows, culture, and more. This particular episode is hosted by me, I'm TJ Draper, and I am not joined by my co-host Joseph Darnell, but by Clark Douglas. How are you, Clark? I'm doing well, TJ. How are you? I am doing pretty well. I'm just getting over a slight head cold that I had uh, over the weekend, so uh, glad to have be rid of that. Uh, I wanted to let folks know that the reason Joseph is not with us uh, this time is because he is actually uh, on jury duty and uh, is just not available. So, and we wanted the podcast to go on, and uh, Joseph recommended Clark that you join me on the podcast tonight. So it's a it's great to have you here. I, I just just got acquainted with some of your uh, stuff this past week that you do with the Sights and Sounds and Cinema podcast. Well, thank you uh, first of all for having me. Joseph may regret recommending me by the end of the podcast i don't know but um i'm certainly glad to be here and uh talk to you about movies and music and all of that yeah yeah i mean it seemed like a good fit uh with given your um the fact that you love cinema uh and the scores and you do a podcast uh, uh, about that and you have a radio program about that uh and you do that over and we'll have a link in the show notes uh over at dvdverdict.com is that the right url I do. Uh, yeah, I started the Sounds and Sights of Cinema as a radio program uh, on the radio station that I work at, WHIE, in Griffin, Georgia, and I still uh, do it as a radio program on Saturdays. But in 2008, uh, I started contributing it to DVD Verdict as well, putting it in podcast form, and um, they've been gracious enough to host that for a few years, and so I've been enjoying it and uh, just an opportunity to share some of the film music that I love with people across the world. Yeah, and and I listened to the four most recent episodes. I have to admit, I started skimming because uh, I was just running out of time to get sure. it all done before the podcast tonight. And uh, but I, I listened to quite a lot of it, and certainly all any of your commentary or anything that you would have to say. Um, <clears throat> but uh, you, you came up with a lot of. Um, of music that I had not heard or even heard of the composer, and I I have quite a bit of soundtrack in my library, but I would guess that it was pro- it's probably a lot more mainstream stuff. Like uh, uh, I, I I'm really loving right now, and I go through phases too. I'm really loving right now the soundtrack for the recently released Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, and Alan Silvestri's great work there. And you you actually one of the ones that I listened to, you had highlighted Alan Silvestri. I did. So that was kind I of did. fun. Yeah. Um, I, I've always enjoyed his music, and um, I, I'd actually done a program on Alan Silvestri in the past, uh, spotlighting the collaborations he had done with director Robert Zemeckis, um, where I think he's done some of his best work. But uh, there's still so much of value on his resume. I wanted to go back and uh, take a look at some of the other stuff and uh, enjoyed getting a chance to do that. Yeah, and, and uh, for our audience, by the way, this episode I will put in the show notes uh, the link to it, and uh, you can find the show notes at uh, moviebyte.com slash mbpodcast slash 14. That's where the show notes will be. Uh, it was interesting, <clears throat> excuse me, it was interesting in that episode uh, that uh, while you highlighted Alan Silvestri, you did not put uh, use any of the music that he is perhaps, at least to me, the most famous for, which and, and collaborated with Robert uh, Zemeckis, which was Back to the Future. 
Right. Um, the only the only reason for that being, I, I know I'm inevitably going to repeat myself with some of the music I feature on the program from time to time. Sure. We do an hour every week. But Back to the Future, for various reasons, um, a score that has been featured numerous times on the Sounds and Sights of Cinema in the past, and uh, including on the previous Alan Silvestri show uh, that I had done. So I didn't want to go back to that well too often and maybe use uh, time I would have used playing some selections from that score to highlight something a little less well-known. But it's certainly gotten um, its its fair share of playtime on the Sounds and Sights of Cinema over the years. Gotcha. But yeah, I, I I do understand because sometimes I'll do a show on a composer or a certain theme, and something seemingly obvious will be left out, uh, and someone will be upset about that, and they'll tell me, you know, you should have played this. Um, that's <laughs> a big oversight on your part, and, and I do understand that because I want each self-contained show to be as satisfying as possible. But at the same time, for the two or three listeners out there who do listen to the sounds and sights of cinema every week. Uh, I don't want to continue giving them the same stuff over and over again uh, since they've already heard that before. So. Sure, and, and it didn't bother me that you didn't. I just noted it because I, you know, once I saw that the episode was about Alan Silvestri, I'm like, oh, I'm going to get to hear that great Back to the Future <laughs> score. And uh, there yeah. was a lot of music that he had done that uh, I had not heard of. So I was, you know, I was very uh, pleased to listen to that episode. And uh, I'll definitely be tuning into that podcast uh, quite a bit more often now. Well, cool. Uh, I, I hope you'll enjoy it. And it's it's not, you know, it, it's not the most polished podcast in the world, and it's not uh, anything groundbreaking by any means, but it, it is a format in which I get an opportunity to share some film music with people that they might not have heard before. And if I do that and maybe get some people interested in the world of film music a little bit more, then um, I feel like I've done my job. Yeah. So um, I wanted to ask you just a little bit about what it's like to be a radio station manager. I, I just can't imagine <laughs> that. Um, it's a little chaotic. Uh, it's probably less glamorous than people think it might be, even if they think it's not glamorous at all. It's probably less glamorous than that. Okay, well, um, just, just, <laughs> if I can jump in for just a second, sure. just speaking to that, um, I, I guess I probably just assumed that. Uh, it would not be that all that glamorous because I'm a I'm in the film world, uh, so I I kind of know that when you when you look at uh, filmmaking, it looks really glamorous and fun and stuff, and right. and, and it can be really fun and it is really sure. fun for me. But uh, there there's a lot of work that goes on there, and so I guess I I assume, but our audience may not that being a radio station manager has got to be challenging. Uh, it 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 is, and we're a small radio station, so everybody who works there wears a lot of hats. And in my case, being the station manager uh, can entail producing programs, uh, filling out paperwork, uh, producing commercial spots, taking out the trash, <laughs> whatever mm -hmm. may come up. So a little bit of everything, and. Um, yeah, it keeps me on my toes, though. My my work week is never exactly the same from week to week because <laughs> there are always new challenges coming up to deal with. So yeah. it's interesting. And, uh, yeah, like I say, it keeps me on my toes. Yeah, now, um, where where did you, uh, be, because you do that sights, uh, sights and Sounds of Cinema, where did you develop your passion for uh, film scores? Um, it, it was... <sighs> Quite a long while ago when I was a kid, um, actually when I was younger, uh, there was a lady who was 
renting a room in our basement from my family, and she was staying with us. And one day she gave me uh, a couple of CDs that she had that she didn't want anymore. She had a pretty vast CD collection. And one of those CDs was a soundtrack to the movie Dances with Wolves, um, written by John Barry. And I had never listened to a movie soundtrack before. This was my uh, my first experience with that. But I fell in love with it really quickly. Uh, it was really fascinating stuff, beautiful music. And mm-hmm. uh, in addition to that, on that album in particular, the music really told a story. And even though I, I hadn't seen the movie and didn't see it for uh, quite a few years until after I listened to that uh, soundtrack, um, I, I, I really felt like I could see some sort of story uh, in my head listening to it. And from there, uh, I sort of started exploring the, the world of film music a little bit more. Um, I bought the John Williams soundtrack for Superman, the movie, oh, uh, not too yeah. long afterwards and, and enjoyed that one. And, uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score for Rudy was another really early one that I got because uh, I'd heard a piece from that and enjoyed it and, uh, just sort of developed a passion for that and started finding out about more composers and more music and more musical styles uh, within the world of film music. And um, it just sort of evolved from there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I find uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm not nearly into the soundtrack like you are, but I, I do have a lot of soundtrack in my library. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I find that uh, when I, when I watch a film, unless I'm really paying attention and conscious of the music, I, it kind of, all blends in with the totality of the movie, and, and so I get a different experience when I purchase the soundtrack and uh, listen to it on its own. Uh, certainly that was the case with the Avengers most recently, and that's the one I've been right. listening to the most lately, but some of my favorite music right now is uh, Hans Zimmer's uh, work with Batman, uh, the Batman trilogy, uh, and, and with um, P- Pirates of the Caribbean, so... Uh, uh, that's some of the soundtrack I've been enjoying lately. I don't know, um, how you feel about those composers. Uh, I, um, <laughs> probably the film composer I have the most complicated relationship with is Hans Zimmer. Um, okay. Just, just in terms of listening to his music. And, and that's not because I think, uh, that he's a lesser film composer. I, I'm absolutely in love with a lot of his music. Um, I actually had a piece of film music that he wrote, uh, played in my wedding. A few years ago. Oh, nice. Um, but I, I, I think he's a tremendously talented composer in his own right. At the same time, I have very mixed feelings about the style of composing that he's brought to Hollywood and has sort of made the norm in recent years. Hmm. What, what kind of style uh, would you be referring to? Well, first of all, he has a very distinctive sort of sound, and it's been imitated by a lot of people, but very few people can do it as well as he can. So we have a lot of Hans Zimmer sound-alikes who Mm -hmm. aren't half as talented as Hans Zimmer. And that can get a little frustrating, but more problematic is uh, the method of composing that he's brought to Hollywood, which is where he'll write um, a suite of music featuring basically the main themes and hand that off to a team of assistants and protégés and interns and have them essentially flesh that out and write the score. So what we have now in a lot of blockbusters being written by Hans Zimmer and people who have been trained by Hans Zimmer are scores which are essentially being written by committee uh, instead Mm. of, you know, coming from the vision of a single person. And while I can see... 
to some extent, the benefits of that, you're able to do a lot more in a lot less time if you have so many people working on it. Um, I think it leads to a brand of scoring which generally um, has less focus and purpose than I think something like that ought to have. Hmm, and so, I, I, so I have very mixed feelings about it. Yeah, and I was not aware that uh, that he had he did he scored like that. So I guess right. I'm not and, just and, and a lot of people wouldn't be because say uh, on the score for uh, the Dark Knight Rises, uh, one of his most recent works. Um, it, Hans Zimmer's name is on the soundtrack album, and you would assume, looking at that, okay, this says Hans Zimmer. Hans Zimmer wrote all of this music. But, in fact, that's not actually the case. He wrote uh, about a 20-minute suite of music and then passed that along to uh, the people who work for him, and they transformed that into a full-blown score huh. uh, under his supervision. So it's it's a different approach, and uh, it's becoming more and more popular but I don't know that it should. Yeah, no, that makes me feel a lot uh, like my Batman soundtrack a lot less. <laughs> well, I mean, the, good music is good music, so you, the end result is all, all you really can judge. Uh, however you get there is, um, you know, your own business, I suppose. But uh, I do tend to think that that sort of approach will produce valuable music um, less than a single person sort of working out their vision musically. Sure. Uh, well, that's, yeah, that's, uh, I have to think about that. I, I was not aware of that at all. So, uh, <laughs> I'll have to but give it, that some thought. But, but again, I am a really big fan of Hans Zimmer's stuff and, uh, written several scores that I really, really love. Um, it, it's one of his lesser known works, but a score he wrote in the early 90s for a movie called Beyond Rangoon, mm. uh, is astonishingly beautiful stuff. Just, just a really incredible score. And, uh, yeah, the the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean scores too that you mentioned uh, are, are a lot of fun. Not so much. I didn't really care for the most recent one. Um, yeah, and I can't bring that one to mind either. So I I'm not. I, I it didn't stand out to me apparently. My my favorite, uh, of course, he didn't score the first film, but uh, I, right. I believe one of his proteges did. Is yeah, that correct? Klaus Bedelt. Okay. Yes. Uh, but the second film, uh, uh, Dead Man's Chest, has some of right. my favorite stuff. Uh, the, the Kraken. Is is a really great piece, and That's uh, the, good stuff. The, the, the Davy Jones, the Davy Jones theme is really awesome. Yeah. So. So yeah, some some good stuff there for sure. Yeah. Now, uh, what are uh, what are some of your favorite film composers? There, there are a lot of them. Um, if I if I had to pick one guy who's sort of consistently the person I go back to the most, um, it would probably be Jerry Goldsmith. Mm. Um, I, I've it's very rare that I've heard Jerry Goldsmith score that I don't think has at least some uh, considerable value. Uh, he's an incredibly versatile composer. He worked in just about every genre over the course of his career. Uh, wrote a lot of groundbreaking music for a lot of different movies. Uh, perhaps not held in quite as high regard as somebody like John Williams, because while John Williams is scoring these mega hits for the likes of... Uh, Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and so on. Jerry Goldsmith is scoring a lot of movies that turned out to be flops. Um, just to sort of give you uh, an example of how their careers went, um, John Williams scored Star Wars. Jerry Goldsmith scored Star Trek, the motion picture. Right. Uh, John Williams scored Superman. Jerry Goldsmith scored Supergirl. <laughs> so <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so it, it was that sort of trend, but... Uh, 
just some incredible music. Yeah, and speaking of, of Star Trek The Motion Picture, uh, I am a huge Trek fan, and I don't like that film, but I love the music from the film. Uh, yeah, that's, and that's that's where I first became acquainted with Jerry Goldsmith's work. Yeah, that's that's a great score, and honestly, quite possibly the best score written for a Star Trek movie, uh, even though that, that claim certainly couldn't be made of the movie itself. No. But, uh, yeah, I mean that's debatable. I I I really like um the uh the the uh boy I'm losing it right here. Uh Star Trek 2. You can no, help. Wrath me. of Khan. Yes. Yeah. Uh what's the name of that composer? James Horner. Thank you. Yes, James mm-hmm. Horner. I really like his work as well uh, on the really second. Another really good film. score. Yeah. Yeah. Now the the third film I felt like he kind of went a little lethargic with the score and, and Yeah, it, it it was like um the best description I've heard of the score for Star Trek Three is less of the same. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's perfect. It's just everything slowed down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But Jerry Goldsmith, he scored the first uh, Star Trek film, and then he scored uh, all except for the. Well, he scored uh, Insurrection, mm-hmm. um, the oh, First Contact, Insurrection, and Nemesis as well, and right. did great work there. He did. He did. And um, being something of a of a next generation Star Trek guy myself, uh, I, I've always held First Contact in rather high regard as a movie and as a film score. Yes, it was a great uh, score. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I've I've always um, enjoyed that series, even during some of its um, shall we say more embarrassing moments. Uh, you mean like seasons one and two? Well, yeah, uh, but, but I mean the Star Trek franchise in general, too, going back to the movie, even something like uh, Star Trek V, which is about as bad. As, oh, that's right. He did do that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, that score is another great score. It is, yeah. But uh, the movie is a little tough to get through sometimes. Yeah, I, I enjoy it a little more than the first Star Trek film, just because there's a little bit uh, better pace and, and action, but no more story. <laughs> yeah. So, uh well, that's so Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, what about uh, some of your other uh, favorite composers? Other favorites, um, an Italian composer, Ennio Morricone, um, who probably most famous for uh, writing the scores for uh, some of the Clint Eastwood spaghetti westerns back in the day, like The mm. Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, and For a Few Dollars More. In those, um, but has written a ton of incredible music over the course of his career, and uh, some scores that. I would rank among my absolute favorites. Um, his music for Once Upon a Time in the West is uh, easily one of my favorite film scores ever written. And uh, even though he's somebody also who's worked on a lot of obscure movies, specifically a lot of obscure Italian movies that most American viewers will never see, and in fact I haven't seen most of them, but uh, he, that he's just written remarkable music for. Uh, John Williams would have to be up there. Uh, I know he's probably the most celebrated living film composer and in some sense deservedly so he's uh he's certainly the king of modern film music in a lot of ways and uh yeah i've really enjoyed a lot of john williams stuff so so he would be up there john barry who of course gave me my my first film music experience would be there too he passed away a few years ago Mm. but um a lot of really nice film music there. All of the those great scores for the early Bond movies are a lot of fun. And uh, some of his more lush romantic scores, like Somewhere in Time or Dances with Wolves, are very nice, too. I have to, I have to go back to the John Williams one. And, and I agree that in many ways he should be celebrated. But I, I have been known to say, I've said it in a couple of my reviews now, I believe I've said it on this podcast, that I, okay. I, I like, no, no, I love his themes like okay think of when when i think of superman 
his theme for Superman springs instantly to mind. When right. I think of Star Wars, his Imperial March, not not even just the opening music, although that's good too, but the Imperial March may be one of his best works. Um, you know, so in in many ways, I and so what I what I often say is I really like John Williams' themes, but I often feel that his overall scores, while good, and you can listen to them on their own and they're great work, they fail to capture the proper essence of the film. At least it feels to me like. Hmm. Uh, like like recently, I just rewatched because it was it came out in IMAX and I went to the theater, the IMAX theater, and saw it was the right. Indiana Jones film, and I was taken to Star Wars so many times by the music that I I, I felt like what is he doing? It, it's 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 just remix Star Wars music. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I suppose I can see where you're coming from with that, and I think. <sighs> You'll get that with a number of composers, uh, who have a certain sound. Inevitably, they're going to wind up, if not, uh, repeating themselves, then at least covering rather similar territory. Sure. And we've seen a lot with, uh, a composer like James Horner, who borrows from himself quite a bit, or Danny Elfman, uh, who borrows from himself quite a bit. Uh, unless you're a composer who's, um, has, um, the ability to sort of change personality musically on a dime, I think you're inevitably going to end up doing that at some point. Mm. And I, I think it's perhaps a little bit more noticeable with John Williams because it's not too often that John Williams scores a movie which isn't some sort of prominent, well-known film. Um, for a while there, it seemed like just about everything he was scoring was some you know huge blockbuster mega hit that half the people in the world were seeing. So some of those bits of... Um, Borrowing material, borrowing sounds, perhaps seem a bit more prominent than yeah. they might in the cases of other composers. And, and maybe that's what it is. I mean, in terms of repeating himself, maybe that's what it is. Because uh, I certainly can usually, if it's a well-known uh, film composer, I can tell who scored the film if I'm listening right. for it. Like, I could tell... I recently watched the original Total Recall, horrible film, uh, <laughs> but I, I did it because I was go- I wanted to uh, con- compare and contrast with the new Total Recall. But yeah. I could tell I, I didn't even realize that he had scored that. And I, as soon as I started hearing some of the music, I thought Jerry Goldsmith scored that, didn't he? Mm-hmm. And and sure enough, he had. So I can usually pick out the film composers, and that doesn't bother me. But for some reason, with John Williams, I've always just felt like the repetition just is a little too much. But but beyond that, um, it's it's just sometimes there are moments that I just feel like he misses, and and again, I I know it's very subjective. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose it is. Music tends to be a rather subjective thing, and it has uh, a, a different effect on different people depending on what your tastes are. Mm-hmm. But yeah, John Williams does have a particular sound, particularly uh, for you know the action adventure blockbusters he has a particular sort of sound that he goes to a lot and there is going to be some overlap there um but at the same time i have to say that i've always felt the score for raiders of the lost ark is uh among his best works um and for me that would extend beyond just the raiders march but just uh, so many pieces of that i mean his his music in the map room sequence is mm. just uh spine tingling stuff really good and uh the love theme for Indian Marion is really nice, and uh, some of that stuff towards the end during the big uh, sort of spectacular face-melting sequence is quite something. <laughs> yes. and, yeah, um, I, I don't know. I've always been in love with that score, but as you say, music is a pretty subjective thing. Yeah, the type of music that I was just thinking of uh, that I, I really like um, 
and and maybe it's a little bit too low key for some people, but uh, very recently James Newton Howard's work with the Hunger Games was I felt really compelling, and just as compelling were the moments he chose not to score yeah. as as the ones that he chose to score. That that can be an important thing, and that's not a choice that um, many composers are getting to make these days. Right. Once upon a time, uh, movies were pretty selective about which moments had music and which moments didn't. Now, uh, most movies, particularly most big movies, mm-hmm. uh, are just wall-to-wall music. There's almost always something going on, um, which, you know, I, I guess I understand to a certain extent, but it also can... Uh, be a little overwhelming. There are moments, I think, when you need silence, and uh, a lot of modern filmmakers seem to be afraid of that. Yes. But, like, uh, one of the most effectively scored films I've seen in recent years um, was No Country for Old Men a few years ago, which had almost no music. Um, And the silence uh, in in that movie, um, only a, a few moments of sort of musical ambiance here and there, but the the almost total silence in that movie added so much to the atmosphere and made it stand out so much from so many modern thrillers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, we, we probably need to move on uh, and keep our podcast moving, but I just wanted to mention just a couple more things with you real quick. I okay. recently watched, actually today, in preparation for this podcast, watched your interview. Uh, you, there was actually two episodes of Movieology uh-huh. uh, that you... Uh, were interviewed by Joseph. And uh, uh, the, the two things that I really just want to mention from that is uh, okay. two phrases that stood out to me. Um, and one was a little more prominent and part of your main point, and that was that cinema does not shape our society, it reflects our society. And that is something that I have tried to put into words uh, oftentimes and have never put it in words so succinctly as that. Um, that I thought that was very good. Well, I, I appreciate that. that. That's something that sort of... Um been a pet issue of mine in recent years because it does bug me a little bit every now and then um somebody in the media or elsewhere will decide that a certain film or video game or tv show or some other piece of pop culture um is you know corrupting the minds of youth and destroying america (laughs) this that and the other thing and i i I really do feel like that's sort of um a backwards approach to it absolutely you know movies don't do that well not to repeat myself, but it, you know they do reflect our culture, and it's very rare that we've had um, anything that's not already existing uh, in some form presented to us. And- right. There, there's there's always some sort of impetus behind the reason a movie was made. Right. There, right. there. It didn't. It didn't come out and shape you. You as a society, we shaped it. It came out of something. It didn't come from nothing. Right. And I think something else that's important to remember is that. Hollywood's ultimate goal is making money, and there are a lot of people out there who try to sell this idea that Hollywood is out to brainwash people with these specific agendas. And and I think that's going on a lot less than a lot of people suspect. Um, Hollywood is trying to figure out how to make money, uh, regardless of what that takes, and they're going to... That's why everything everything is test marketed these days, and they try and figure out what people are going to like. How can we tweak this movie to get the maximum amount of ticket sales. So ultimately what Hollywood is about is giving us what we want. Sure. Uh, not about telling us what we should, you know, want. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then the other thing, it was something you mentioned in passing, and I just have to mention it on the podcast because it was so good. Um, you said uh, no matter how much we try to tell someone that, for instance, Transformers Revenge of the Fallen will melt their brains with horribleness. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, yeah, I, I can't stand the Transformer movies. I saw the first one not knowing any better, not, not having heard if it was good or bad, and mm-hmm. I said I would never set foot in the theater to see a Transformers movie ever, 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 ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can't say I blame you at all. I'm ashamed to say um, that I've seen all three of those movies, for review purposes, admittedly, but... Uh, If I had uh, been running movie by, I probably would have had to go see them, uh, and and we'll probably have to go see any future ones now. (laughs) Um, Yeah, for, for me, it never got worse than the second movie which was mm. uh incredibly difficult just to sit through and the the strange thing about that movie was it had one of the most enthusiastic crowd reactions i have ever seen in a movie people yelling and cheering and throwing their popcorn and weird having a grand time but uh <laughs> it was pretty bad what what was the ratio when you went to see these films of teenage males versus anybody else? <laughs> it, it was a pretty diverse mix. Okay, uh, there were okay. teenagers and adults and little kids and uh, a little bit of everybody in there. Interesting. Uh, All right. Everyone seemed to be into it. Well, that, that blows the theory I had about Megan Fox being the draw for the teenage guys. But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think that's something that um, isn't, working as much as it used to because say back in the 1970s um a film could promote the idea hey we have a pretty girl in this movie why don't you come see it guys um now in the age of the internet i I don't really think that's um something that's going to sell tickets that's true i I didn't think about that but but uh, but uh it's still something they they lean on now and then anyway yeah all right, well, uh, we should move on. We're going to talk okay. about two films, and one only briefly. I can't remember if I mentioned this at the end of the last podcast or not, but we were planning on talking about Taken 2, but Clark, you haven't had a chance to see it yet, so I'll just talk about it briefly, and we may talk a little bit about Taken, the first Taken film, and then I'll give my opinion on the second one, and then we will move on to a film both of us have seen. I'm assuming you like it. I loved it. A film called Argo. Yes. So, um, But first, let's talk about uh, Taken. Um, and, and let's talk quickly, uh, about the film that preceded Taken 2. We can talk about Taken. Okay. Um, how did you feel about Taken? I really enjoyed Taken. Um, (laughs) I, I seem to have a slightly different reaction to that movie than a lot of people, uh, did. I, I found it really entertaining. Um, Liam Neeson's performance was excellent. It sort of, um, gave him this new action movie status that he's enjoying these days. And a uh, very effective performance, well-made thriller. I found it sort of unintentionally entertaining in some ways because it's probably the most um, just sort of wildly xenophobic movie I've ever seen. If somebody is a foreigner, they're pretty much corrupt and evil in that movie <laughs> and uh, pretty much are, are going to die within a matter of moments Interesting. <laughs> as soon as they appear on screen. But I, I found it really entertaining and uh, a little on the silly side, but uh, very enjoyable. However, a lot of people I've talked to seem to take this movie very, very seriously. You know, they say, oh, I watched Taken, and now I'll never let my daughter go to Europe, because this uh, movie <laughs> illuminated some very important social issues we all need to be thinking about. And I, I, I don't know, it seemed very exaggerated, too. It and, did seem uh, exaggerated, although I don't... I, I 
found it, I took it very seriously as as far as the drama of the film. I didn't take it in right. a way that I would never let my daughters go overseas. Although I th- now that I think about it, if I had been Kim's dad, I don't think I would have been okay with that. But um, that's <laughs> right. neither here nor there. I enjoyed Taken certainly for what it was. I mm-hmm. I believe I said when we mentioned it briefly in our last podcast. Uh, I believe I said I would probably give it about three and a half out of five stars, something like okay. that. Uh, and I enjoyed it a lot, and part of my enjoyment of it was just that this father was willing to do whatever he needed to do to protect his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I enjoyed that. I mean, just that angle alone is worth a lot. Yeah. It's 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 a, a solid movie, and, um, you know, e- even though I, I think its portrait of it is overdone, uh, certainly the whole issue of sex slavery is, is a very serious and real one. Sure, and, yeah. Uh, it did bring some attention to that and uh, perhaps inspired a little bit of activism in that regard, which is a good thing. Yeah, and I haven't looked at the stats recently. I should look that up on uh, a Box Office Mojo uh, to see. I, it seems to me like maybe it did pretty well. I, I know that the yeah the first Taken did very well, and I know that Taken 2 also did quite well at the box office. I think it was something... And uh, I, I may be completely off on this, but I seem to recall reading it was around fifty million its opening weekend. So uh, people still in the mood for uh, some takeniness. Yeah, the original Taken right now is at a t- uh, total domestic gross of one hundred and forty-five million worldwide. Yeah. It's two hundred twenty-six million with a production budget of twenty-five million. And you know, a film like that, it didn't have uh, if it had CGI in it, I didn't notice it. Uh, I'm sure there was some, but. Uh, enhancing things here and there, but it you know it didn't cost a lot really to make a film like that. Well, I say a lot comparatively speaking uh, to something like uh, the Avengers, which was something like two hundred twenty million. Uh, so it, it did very well. I mean that that seems like a money earner to me. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And obviously was probably the impetus behind them uh, making a second film. Uh, uh, undoubtedly. And unfortunately, uh, now, Clark, are you okay with me spoiling this for you, or do you need to cover your ears? <laughs> uh, go right on ahead. Okay. Uh, Taken 2 is not the film that Taken was, and and I enjoyed it for what it was. I'm, I'm going to have to rank it somewhere. I, I, it's almost like I wish there was a, a ranking between two and a half and three stars, but I'm probably going to go with two and a half, which okay. is I would watch it again, basically. It, my, my opinion is that it needed some help, but I would watch it again if some friend wanted to watch it and it wouldn't bug me. Uh, but I wouldn't watch it again on purpose, probably. Um, and, and just for a little background on Taken 2, this is in theaters. It opened October 5th with a uh, production budget of $45 million. Uh, opening weekend, uh, it, it went beyond that and made $49 million back. Uh, and right now it's sitting domestically at 89 million with a worldwide total of 225 million, uh, excuse me, 224 million. So doing pretty well for them. And a lot of people seem to like it. Uh, Uh, certainly seems so. Yeah. And so the storyline is this Brian Mills, the former CIA man who rescued his daughter, Kim from some Albanian human traffickers is being targeted by the families of the men he killed. When he goes to Istanbul on a job, he invites Kim and her mother, Lenore, whose marriage is on the rocks, to join him. When the Albanians learn of the, <clears throat> excuse me, when the Albanians learn of this, they try to grab them. They get Brian and Lenore. He warns Kim, and she evades them. Later, he calls Kim to tell her to go to the embassy, but she insists that he let her help them. Brian tells her to get his case, which is filled with weapons, and with that, she finds them and gives them him a weapon. 
he escapes and plans to come back for Lenore, but they are too many and unable to save Lenore, so he relies on his memory to find her. And I, uh, speaking of that scene, since uh, this thing I was reading brought it up, I, I did kind of enjoy that, although it seemed a bit unrealistic. Uh, basically, he's blindfolded and cuffed in a van, and he's uh, and it's a very well crafted scene to show you that he's paying attention to everything auditory and the which way the van is turning and the the sounds and just everything so that he could if he needed to later retrace his steps to get back here and find this place and uh but at the same time it seemed a little unrealistic like i i don't know anybody in real life that could actually do that (laughs) but uh he is cia trained so maybe maybe there's something to that um and it, it was a little uh uh, how shall I say, um, uh, the same plot re- reversed. Like, instead of Kim being taken, uh, Kim's dad and mother is taken. And uh, But but in, in large part, uh, kind of the same plot, the same twist. The difference being that now uh, the cinematographer and the director have decided to go all shaky cam with very high shutter speeds so that it's, it has a very stroby effect, and the effect is makes it very unwatchable. Um, the, the action was just horrible. Not very well choreographed. Let's just shake the camera around instead. Which, which is one of the points about the original Taken that I found much better was that the action was good and very well choreographed. And uh, that is not so with this film. Uh, also, Taken 2 features a uh, a scene where uh, Brian is uh, sitting in the passenger seat of the car, shooting at people while Kim drives and is, is supposedly quaking in fear and yet does all these cool car moves and things, and the whole scene was just completely unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> uh, there was no way she could have actually done that. And, and uh, a stick shift. Uh, and she had just gotten her driver's license. So... Uh, yeah, I wasn't wasn't all that happy with this film. Yeah, uh, that that seems to be the general critical consensus. I saw it was something like, um, oh, I forget the exact score, but it was quite low over on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and most critics seem to feel it was a, a pretty big step down from the first one. Yeah, very very much so. I I very much felt the same way. And I'm looking on Rotten Tomatoes right now to see what what's going on with with that. So let me just pull that up. And the critics, the tomato meter, uh, were at 21%. Uh, audience liked it better at 59%, but that's still not great. Yeah. Um, but it's making a lot of money. I suspect that's mostly because people saw, you know, went to see it because the original was good. Right. Well, and since it made a lot of money, there is inevitably going to be a Taken 3. Oh, it's already been um, announced. Yeah. So I do have, I do have an idea. Um, if since I assume the people who may take and are listening to this podcast and will take this idea. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure that's a safe assumption. Right. Um, so my idea for Taken 3, if they do Taken 3, they fast forward a few years and uh, the daughter's name is Kim, right? Yes. Okay. So Kim, Kim is married. She has a little kid, like a little toddler, uh, maybe two years old. And, uh, Brian on his day off is tasked with babysitting the toddler. And they're out at Central Park or something, and Brian's reading a book and playing with the toddler and all this sort of thing, and the toddler wanders off and gets lost. And, uh, he doesn't know what to do, he panics, uh, the toddler's run off somewhere, he can't find him, and so he makes up this whole big elaborate story for his family about how terrorists have kidnapped the toddler, and he absolutely has to find them, and he's on this very serious mission 
when, in fact, he's just failed at his babysitting job and then <laughs> frantically runs around the city trying to find the kid. <laughs> I think that would be a nice change of pace. But that's <laughs> yeah. I doubt if they're going to go that direction. No, pro- probably, but probably they'll kidnap everybody again. Yeah. yeah, that'd be my guess. Yep. So the the you know the things that to me uh, made the original Taken a good film and endearing were not present in this film. So mm. uh, I, I found that quite quite a letdown. Yeah. So, but yes, Taken Three has been announced, and uh, we'll probably I'll probably go to this theater to see it because I didn't hate this one <laughs> that much. So uh-huh. I just had mild dislike for it. I will say that the first Taken also had one of the more memorable marketing campaigns um, in recent memory. It had that very simple but effective trailer of uh, Liam Neeson growling into his phone. And uh, it struck a chord with a lot of people before the movie came out. I remember a lot of people saying, you know what, that Liam Neeson movie looks pretty great. Uh, yeah. And uh, it built up a lot of attention for it. Uh, the, the, just on the trailer alone, the trailer for Taken 2 didn't look nearly as... Uh, well, nearly as much fun for starters. Yeah, they definitely took some of the fun out of it. Uh, they they had some humor in the beginning of the film at the expense of Kim's boyfriend, uh, and 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 uh, kind of at the expense of uh, Brian Liam Neeson's character too, who's being overprotective, uh, of course. And uh, so they they had a little bit of humor there, and then the the I think the steam of the humor kind of ran out. <laughs> Yeah. So. I am curious, what do you think of uh, Liam Neeson's sort of transition into this gruff action hero in the past few years after for so much of his career being a more uh, a, a more sensitive actor in films like Schindler's List and even something like The Phantom Menace, you know, a a quieter, more sensitive sort yeah, of Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing I've ever seen him in was The Phantom Menace, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize to anyone who hears this that I have actually watched the original Star Wars, or the <laughs> not, not the original Star Wars, but the new Star Wars films. Uh, I know it's 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 a shameful thing, but uh, somebody's got to do it. Uh, but I did like Liam Neeson in The Phantom Menace, I have to say. Uh, but then I, I have since watched uh, Schindler's List as well, and and then most of my experience with Liam has been then after that, like in Batman uh, Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I'm sorry, he was not in The Dark Knight. He was in The Dark Knight Rises slightly. I'm right. I'm uh, I'm speaking out of turn here, <laughs> but he was in Batman Begins and did a great job. Uh, he was recently in uh, Battleship, which was not that great of a movie, but uh, and 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 probably they could have lifted the movie way up by utilizing Liam Neeson a lot more than they did. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting because I consider him to be a great actor, and yet some of the films he's been in a lot recently haven't been as great of films. Yeah, uh, it, it's been an interesting um, sort of career change for him. Um. But it's something he seems to handle pretty well, and uh, you know, depending on the quality of the material, defines how well it works a lot of the time. But I did really like one movie he made earlier this year, not Battleship, which I didn't see, but which looked pretty rough. Um, yeah, don't bother. But <laughs> I did see The Gray, um, which I thought was a really interesting movie. I wasn't expecting much from that movie, mm. but it, it, it surprised me. I found it um, very intriguing and. Um, Actually, one of the more philosophically challenging movies I've seen this year. Some heavy stuff in there, okay. but uh, very interesting. All right. Well, speaking of uh, films that you uh, didn't expect to be good, there's a film that we're going to talk about now that I didn't expect to be good, and I can't really explain why, Okay. Uh, which is Argo. Mm-hmm. I I've, I was just not uh, interested by the trailers at all, and uh, I've, I decided to go ahead and go see it, uh, knowing that you were going to have seen Argo but not taken two, and that way we could talk about it. 
And uh, usually my wife will go with me to the movies, but uh, because I didn't think it was going to be that great of a film and the timing, and because of the timing, she didn't go with me. And now I wish she had because this was a great film. Uh, very great, great film. Do you do you agree? Uh, I I agree that it was an excellent movie. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, I, I have to say that I kind of was expecting it to be good, but that's partially not because I thought the trailers were great. They were fine. I didn't think they were anything remarkable, but because of the track record of uh, director Ben Affleck, mm. who I feel at least has made uh, two exceptional films before this, uh, Gone Baby Gone and The Town. Um, both of which I thought were quite good, especially Gone Baby Gone, um, uh, a very moving and uh, intriguing drama. So I, I had a good deal of confidence in him behind the camera and figured that if he was doing it, it would probably be worth seeing. Yeah, and it certainly was. I, I wrote a review, and it got posted on Movie Byte earlier today. I'll have that in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I, I gave it four and a half stars. I was very pleased, uh, pleasantly so in my case, Uh that it was such a great film. Uh, now, Argo opened on October the 12th, and it had a budget of $44 million, a little less than actually I was expecting, given the production quality. So $44 million. Uh, it opened to $19 million opening weekend and has only made so far $23 million. So that's very disappointing to me that such a great film is doing so poorly. Well, the, the, the read that I've gotten on this is that there are some movies which are designed to, uh, make the bulk of their money on opening weekend and some which are designed to, um, sort of stick around and build word of mouth. Mm. And I think Argo is in the latter category. Um, it's likely going to be up for a lot of award nominations over the next couple of months and, um, from what I understand, the distributors of the movie are feeling pretty confident about its chances to ultimately make a lot of money. Because they feel this is the sort of movie where a lot of people are going to go out and tell their friends, hey, you should really see Argo. This is really something. And build an audience that way. And it's it's worked for a number of movies in recent times. And I have a feeling it will for this one, too. Yeah, and I imagine it's also, I think we've talked about this before on the podcast, it's challenging for an R-rated movie to do well in the box office, I think. This is true. This um, is very true. You know, less less uh, less people are going to see it just uh, out of conscience or out of just you know their standards or whatever. They just as a rule, they don't go see R-rated films. You know, your your uh, teenage kids probably may, may not be. Although I don't know how true that is in this day and age, but uh, maybe they're not going to be going and seeing it without adult supervision and and these sorts of things. Um, and I, I don't even know do the theaters. Uh, I assume they have rules on the age restrictions of an R-rated movie. Uh, they do. Um, you have to be if it's an R-rated movie. You have to be accompanied by an adult. Um, and if you're an unaccompanied minor, if you're say 15 years old and you just want to go see their R-rated movie by yourself, you can't do that. But if you have uh, a 25 year old with you, uh, you know, an older brother or something, I don't know, uh, then you can get in. Yeah, and so uh, the reason yeah, I don't that's... know this is because I was my my parents never went to R-rated films and never took me to R-rated films, so I uh-huh. had no idea. <laughs> uh, there you go. But anyway, uh, so for the storyline of Argo, just in case you haven't seen it, which shame on you, and you shouldn't even be listening to this because we're going to spoil it madly. <laughs> but uh, storyline in 1979, the American embassy in Iran was invaded by Iranian revolutionaries, and several Americans were taken hostage. However, six managed to escape to the official residence of the Canadian ambassador, and the CIA is eventually ordered to get them out of the country. With few options, exfiltration expert Tony Mendez devises a daring plan, create a phony Canadian film project looking to shoot in Iran and smuggle the Americans out as its production crew. 
With the help of some trusted Hollywood contacts, Mendez creates the ruse and proceeds to Iran as its associate producer. However, time is running out and the Iranian security forces closing in on <clears throat> excuse me. However, time is running out with the Iranian security forces closing in on the truth while both his charges and the White House have grave doubts about the operation themselves. So, um, I, again, I don't know what it was about this plot. Maybe I felt like the uh, it was going to be more of a movie about a movie, and it really the, it, it's not a movie about a movie. But uh, I I don't find those to be that compelling. So, um, but the, this this wasn't a movie about a movie. It was a movie about a fake movie, <laughs> right? And I I have to say I was surprised by how well uh, the sort of opposing genres of Hollywood satire and political thriller meshed in this movie. Um, in lesser hands, I think the scenes with the John Goodman and Alan Arkin characters as the uh, Hollywood folks could have seemed out of place and just sort of tonally at odds with the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They they worked very well here and actually, I think, provided a nice bit of comic relief every now and then that would sort of um, ease some of the tension of the scenario a little bit in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I commented in my review, um, I, and we recently talked about Trouble with the Curve on uh, a previous podcast episode, and I, uh, Joseph was fine with John Goodman's performance. Uh, I was not thrilled at all with his performance in Trouble with the Curve. I, I felt like he was a little bit uh, unbelievable as the character there. But uh, in this film, I felt like John Goodman's performance was top-notch. Um, yeah. He, he really he, he did it well. Uh, as as did as you said, Alan Arkin. Uh, great performances from them as our Hollywood uh, guys, and uh, yeah, I, Alan I, Arkin uh, really had that jaded Hollywood producer thing down. Oh, definitely, uh, yes. Um, I yeah, very very good performances all around, really. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Brian uh, you, Brian Cranston did a a, a great job as a eighties uh, early eighties era CIA uh, bigwig guy uh, yeah. with the acting chops and the looks to pull it off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. Which I understand, uh, just as a side note, that you've interviewed him before. Is that correct? Uh, I did. I got a chance to interview him a few years ago. Um, I don't know whether you've ever seen any of the television show that he stars on, Breaking Bad. I have uh, not. Okay. I've never been able to get into that show. Well, I saw. I watched the first season of it and uh, was really, really taken by it. And um, an opportunity came up. They said he would be available to do some interviews. So I was really eager to talk to him about that. Um, so yeah, he was, he was gracious enough to, uh, spend 25, 30 minutes with me chatting about the show. And, um, I, I really enjoyed getting the opportunity to do that. I think he's a fine actor and, um, you know, getting a chance to talk about one of my favorite TV shows was, was quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. Now, is that online anywhere where we can link to it? That was in my pre-DVD verdict today. Uh, so it is not on it was on the Sounds and Sights of Cinema when it aired, but uh, a little before I started putting them on that site. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a transcript of it somewhere. I'll have to see if I can dig that up uh, okay. the, online. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, no, I don't think it, the audio form exists. I've got a copy here at the house somewhere, but. Yeah, but but in any event, uh, great acting all around. I mean, uh, and I, you know, I I don't know why I would have ever I hadn't thought about it. Uh, why I would have had any suspicion that Ben Affleck was a good or bad actor, but now that I think about it, uh, he was. Uh, I saw him in the Sum of All Fears, which I uh, love that movie greatly, and uh, so. Yeah, I, I've had mixed feelings about Ben Affleck as an actor in general. Um, I, I think especially earlier in his career, he took a few roles that weren't really great fits for him. I, 
I thought um, playing Daredevil was a really bad idea. Mm. Um, but some of all fears was a good role for him, and I I, I feel like he's um, matured a lot as an actor as he's gotten older, and I feel like he's come to understand what his strengths and weaknesses are. For a long time, he was trying to be the romantic comedy guy. Um, and he always seems sort of bland in those roles to me. Um, I feel like as a director, he has a more promising career than as an actor, even because behind the camera, as I say, he's, he's three for three as far as I'm concerned. Um, I don't know if you've seen his other movies or what you would think of them. I haven't. Uh, that he's okay. But, um, I, I definitely suggest checking those out at some point, um, cause they're both you know, fine works. Yeah, I definitely will, especially now seeing this. And and the trouble with me, I'm I'm a big fan of cinema and film, but I haven't always had a lot of time to go to films and, and check them out. And now that I'm running Movie Byte, I'm getting a lot more opportunity to do that. So I will definitely be looking into some more Ben Affleck films because I'm very impressed with his uh, his work on this film for sure. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, really enjoyed Argo. Um, uh, a f- good story, well told, and that's hard to find sometimes. It's- yeah, I mean, and even uh, even in the whole first act, there wasn't really a lot of action, and in fact, a lot of it was still story set up and just trying to get us to where we could go do the action in Iran, but it was never boring. There was drama, plenty of drama, and uh, when necessary, comic relief, uh, with the especially with the Hollywood guys, uh, that worked quite well. Um, yeah. And you know what I was surprised about was the this idea of making a fake film to exfiltrate six Americans to me seemed hokey until I saw the film. And then, a, yeah. it, it, you know, once you're in there and in that situation and watching it unfold, you do – at least you're convinced that it really is a, the best option of the of all the bad options. <laughs> right. Uh, as Brian Cranston's character says, it's the best bad idea we have. Right, exactly. You know, where Ben Affleck's uh, character said, you know, we there are no good options, and this is the best of those that are not good. <laughs> well, and I saw, I saw an interview with Ben Affleck a couple of days ago, uh, and he was uh, – commenting upon the fact that uh, this story, were it not a true story, would simply seem too ridiculous and preposterous to turn into a movie. If you bet. If this were just a fictional idea, uh, people would roll their eyes and be like, really? Come on. And that's why I think partly I, I, uh, I, did, I was uh, lax in doing my research or whatever, and I didn't realize when I saw the first trailer and probably even the second trailer that this was based on a true story, or I don't even know if the first trailer mentioned it. Maybe it did and I missed it. I, I Somehow it didn't click with me. Uh, and, and so once I realized it was based on a true story, uh, it, it did come together for me a lot better. Uh, but it is something have, that you would, you would think, oh, what, what? That's not, that can't happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had heard it was based on a true story, but after seeing the movie, I was inspired a bit to, um, you know, look up a bit more information on what really happened. And, uh, if I can just indulge my nerdier side for just a second. Oh, feel free. <laughs> um, I was delighted to discover that the uh, artist who drew the storyboards, which end up playing a fairly significant role in the film, yeah, uh, was a guy named Jack Kirby, who's one of my favorite comic book writers and artists, um, was particularly prominent back in the 1970s, and that uh, he was the one responsible for putting those together and participating in that. So uh, just another reason for me to think Jack Kirby's one of the coolest people uh, who ever lived. So, <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah, and those storyboards really did play uh, a key role. Come come to the end, uh, that that was yeah. a, that was a great scene. It, it really was. I, I have to suspect that um, 
maybe uh, some of the areas where dramatic license were taken a little bit would be during the climax. I would guess uh, so. I yeah, mean, who- I would have to imagine it wasn't quite as to the wire as the film suggests. Right. Nothing but- hardly ever is, and and it's just not good for drama though if it's not. Right, that's true. But the film, um, as indicated by some of the uh, side-by-side uh, real-life photos and stills from the film they showed during the end credits, did seem to go to great pains to recreate things as they were at that Yeah, time. that was impressive. I mean, even just the down to the characters and how, how much they did look like the real characters. Right. Yeah, that, that was definitely impressive. Yeah, I, I thought so too and uh, really enjoyed Argo. Yeah, what what I found interesting is dur- during uh, during the whole first act, I realized that this was a story about these six people and and exfiltrating them, and I thought, why 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 am I supposed to care about these six people? Um, and and so at first, and and I realized, of course, as a human being, and they're human beings in that situation, I care for them on that level. But you have to dive a lot deeper than that for a film. Sure. And I during the whole first act, somewhere in the back of my mind, as I was analyzing the film, as I want to do, um, I was like, I, 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 I'm not feeling it. And I never realized, it, it really kind of snuck up on me. By the time we came down to the wire, I was like, wow, I do care about these people, you know? <laughs> so that was, I thought yeah. that was a, a masterful uh, stroke to do that that way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and as you said, the acting is great. My only my only complaint, uh, really, that I can think of is that I even so, even though I did care about those six people uh, by the end of the film, I I wanted I wish that we had spent more time with them a little bit, got to got to know them a little more. I felt like we focused, you know, and it is a film about Ben Affleck's character, but I felt like we may have focused on him too much and didn't get to live with them in the fear in Iran quite as much as I might have liked. Yeah, I, I can see where you're coming from there. Uh, there were certainly a lot of characters in this movie, uh, both true. On, the, on the intelligence side of things and over there in Iran and elsewhere. Uh, it's a big cast, but it seems to me um, that this is a more story-driven movie than a character-driven movie anyway. And even though Tony Mendez is the central figure... Um, more a story specifically about what he did and what he was involved in than about him as a person. Yeah. Uh, though I did really like uh, a, a couple of the nice sort of personal touches, uh, the scenes with him and his son and uh, the very brief scene with him and his wife towards the end, which kind of said so much about their relationship with so little. Uh, yeah. It was really nice, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and, and another interesting thing I noticed is that there seems to be uh, quite a few TV actors in here more than film actors. Uh, obviously, John Goodman had a, was on a, a TV show for years. Um, uh, Roseanne. Yes. Yep. Um, uh, I don't know how you say her name. Clea? Clea Duvall. Clea Duvall. She's a big mm-hmm. TV actress. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, uh, oh, I'm going to mangle this name, Zeljiko <laughs> Ivanek. Uh, that sounds close to it. I can never pronounce that one correctly either. Yeah, but and, uh, a good actor, I will say. Yeah, good actor. Everything I've seen him in. Definitely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, does a lot of TV work. And Titus Welliver. Uh, I actually mm-hmm. recently saw him uh, in an episode of Star Trek Voyager that I've been going back and rewatching. So, yeah. I was, it was interesting because normally you don't see quite that much crossover between TV and, and cinema. There seems to be a, a bit of a, a change in attitude towards that in recent years because mm. for a long time in Hollywood, um, you know, TV was sort of uh, frowned upon by a lot of movie people. It's like, oh, TV. You know, that's where all the second string people go until they get 
called up to the big leagues. But um, television has gotten a lot more ambitious over the past. Oh yeah, definitely. So. And 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 yeah. So so uh, I think a lot of people are seeing a lot of the best actors are gravitating towards television now, and uh, as a result, a lot of movies are looking to television when they're casting their films. Yeah, definitely. And and you know it it is you know television used to be, and since we've already talked about Star Trek, I'll use this as an example. As anybody who listens to this podcast knows, I do quite often. <laughs> uh, the original series was all about individual episodes. Every episode right. was self-contained. You didn't have to watch the previous one. And and as we've seen TV progress, and you come to 1987, uh, it was much the same. But then they started doing more two-parters, and, and there was character development over the life of Star Trek The Next Generation. And then you come to Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is more indicative of moving towards the seasonal arc thing. And now you've got these TV shows. Uh, you know, I'm really into Fringe, um, getting into uh, Revolution. And these are very much whole show, like big, basically long movies over the course of episodes. Essentially, yeah, and uh, it, uh, for the most part, I've really enjoyed that approach. With something like Fringe, uh, I, I think is a show that does a really nice job of balancing episodes, which basically tell pretty satisfying, self-contained science fiction stories, and episodes which sort of further the longer story arc show, and yes. some that do both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will say the only thing that frustrates me about TV with that is that of course, we have a lot of shows get canceled every year, and we end up with a lot of unfinished stories where uh, shows that plan to tell a story over the course of six seasons get canceled after one. And Such as Alcatraz, yeah. for instance. Uh, sh- sure, another show I was watching. It, it was a great <laughs> show. I was really disappointed. Yeah, so it's... it's um you know, that can be a little frustrating, but at the same time, I do think TV is faring a lot better these days than it was a couple decades ago. Yeah, there are some ways in which, uh, you know, and, and I, I love cinema, I love the two-hour format, but there are some ways in which I enjoy just as much and sometimes more a, a good show with good seasonal arcs. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, that uh, kind of a side note there, but a lot of TV actors in this film. Comparatively, Now, I do want to just mention for our audience that this film is rated R, and for good reason. Uh, they are not afraid, and, and it's all language, really, and, and some, uh, some violence, but mostly just the language is why this film is rated R. Uh, and in some ways, uh, it, it certainly makes the film more believable, um, you, you, because these people in these situations are going to use those words. Right. Uh, and and even just as the characters themselves, even if they weren't in those situations, would probably drop those words sometimes. So I can understand it, but it certainly, you know, depending on where you're coming from, may give you pause about going to see that film in the theater. So, Right. I mean, it, it, it's definitely a movie for grown-ups. And, yep. Um, I, but I, I think that's a good thing, too, because I... It's nice to see movies that are geared towards grown-ups. And when I say grown-ups, I mean like older viewers who actually have some maturity as opposed to... There are a lot of R-rated movies that still seem to be geared at sort of juvenile teenagers. Right, yes. Where the uh, the sort of excessive content is just there to, um, you know, provide some shock value. But in this case, definitely a movie which I think very much merits the content that it does contain. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I personally, you know, I'm a, I'm, I didn't have a problem with it. Uh, 
because of because it's true to life uh mm-hmm. and and so it i i thought it was good and you know just just wrapping it up here um i would highly recommend argo uh if you haven't seen it in the theater please do so this is uh this is a great film and uh Definitely, from my perspective, I want to encourage Hollywood to make more films like this. More like this, please. <laughs> and, and and less like Taken 2. <laughs> uh, I concur with that, not even having seen Taken 2. Yes. So, so uh, Well, this has, been, uh, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm hoping we'll have you on the podcast again in the future. And, and hopefully Joseph can be here with us the next time you're on the podcast. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, my pal abandoned me here today. Yeah, so well, we good to have him, we can have give him, him a pass for jury duty. He's being a good I citizen, know. so Do, doing his public duty. Yes. So, so and uh, actually, he he uh, messaged me earlier and said that they let him off early, and so but he had a lot of work to do. So yeah, um, stand completely. Yeah. So anyway, uh, where will folks be able to keep up with you? Uh, I know you've mentioned DVD verdict. Uh, is there any other places? Uh, online that they can keep up with your work or or how should they keep up with you um well a dvd verdict is one place i have reviews posting there and i have the podcast posting there every tuesday um if by some small chance anybody happens to be in the uh south atlanta area um i'm here and there and everywhere on whie radio often not doing stuff related to movies or movie music but there nonetheless and then, um, actually, as of just a few weeks ago, um, I became a member of the Online Film Critics Society, and uh, people can find links to my work along with the work of a lot of other web film critics there, um, links to that, but mostly stuff that I'm writing for DVD Verdict anyway, but uh, that's the other outlet I'm into at the moment. All right, very good. Uh I uh, am on Twitter. If you want to follow me, uh, TJ Draper Pro is my username. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash TJ Draper. And of course, um, most of my effort and energy is being directed at MovieBite, where I'm writing reviews and articles and posting lots and lots of news, uh, linking to news and uh, just generally trying to keep MovieBite in shape. So make sure to go to moviebite.com and check that out if you happen to just tune into the podcast. Uh, we would love to have you check out Movie Bite. I think that pretty much wraps up this episode. This was a lot of fun, Clark. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. TJ, thank you for having me. I greatly appreciate it.